0: chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 8 through 12 tonight. Uh, let's go ahead and start reading in verse number 1, kind of uh, go all the way through what we've talked about thus far. Uh, each week, uh, as I prepare, uh, I have to usually cut out notes of things that I have and things that I, I want to give and things that I don't want to give, because uh, I think if I if I just put everything together, we'd be here for hours. And I think I always over-prepare, knowing that I have enough for about an hour's worth, but I could also go about 20 minutes worth. So uh, we'll, we'll see how far we get tonight. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get through verse number 12. The Bible says in verse number 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Remember, uh, the premise of this chapter and this book is about being in Christ, as the uh, title suggests, identity. Uh, and tonight we're going to talk about ex- the explosive blessings of being in, uh, in God's redeemed and part of God's redeemed. But what we're trying to discover on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings is our identity in Christ. Uh, there's an identity that all of us have, and a lot of times as Christians, we are tying our identities to the world and the culture around us instead of tying it to Jesus Christ. And, and I've really noticed this in my own life here as I've done this series and I've, as I've done this study. Uh, it seems like almost everything I've watched on TV or movies or just talking to people and watching things on, on news or online or even seeing people's you know, Facebook posts or social media posts, uh, I see that a lot of people struggle with identity. And I say that because uh, even Christians, they're, they're, they're posting things or saying things or watching things, and, and what they're doing is they're believing a lie of the culture instead of believing what Jesus Christ has already given us in his word. And the, the truth is, as a Christian, if we are truly in Christ, he has set us free. He has made us complete. Everything we need is in him. And as a Christian, we must learn that truth. We must learn those truths. And if we can't learn those truths, then we'll always be searching for our identity trying to discover who we are. But the truth is, it's not our job to discover who we are. Christ has already told us who we are. It's our job to obey what he has given us in his word. Let's continue on verse number two. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Again, this phrase, in Christ And we're going to talk a little bit about tonight in review what we have in Christ. But let me set the stage a little bit, as we've done early on in this study, of what Paul was dealing with. There was a reason why Paul was placing such an emphasis on the things that he's talking about in this letter. Because there was a movement going on during Paul's ministry called Gnosticism. Anybody ever heard of Gnosticism? Anybody? A couple of you. Well, I just want to give a brief definition of Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically denies... The earthly matter is of importance to God. From that thesis, they move to the logical conclusion that Jesus, who died on the cross, was uh, just basically only uh, physically man. They didn't believe that he uh, could provide for salvations. And Gnostics had a hard time believing the idea that Jesus could be fully God and fully man. But if we believe the Bible to be true, we believe that Jesus was fully God and was fully man, right? He was and he is. But in this day and age where Paul lived and uh, Paul had his ministry, a lot of people just had a hard time fathoming that fact. How could someone be fully God? How can someone be fully man? Paul also had to deal with a group of people called the Judaizers. Judaizers were Christians from a Jewish background, much like Paul, who also allowed for Gentiles to be accepted into the church, as did Paul. However, Judaizers demanded that such people first become Jews and adhere strictly to Jewish laws. But if you become a Christian, are you a Jew? No. If you're not a Jew, are you a Jew just because you become a Christian? No. So that that group of people was stating that in order to truly be a Christian, you had to adhere to all the principles of Judaism and become a a Jew in a sense yourself. Uh, They followed Paul everywhere he went, this group of people. And upon leaving his, uh, leaving a church that he had established and started, they tried to undo and undermine much of what had been accomplished. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if someone starts a church and they, they raise up that church and there's a, a group of people, whether it be on the outside or the inside of that church, and it's just waiting for that guy to leave. And as soon as he leaves, they're going to then indoctrinate the people the way that they want to indoctrinate them. That's kind of what was going on here. And that's why Paul struggled greatly during his earthly ministry, because he had all kinds of fights within and without. Uh, another thing, another group that he, uh, that he had to fight against, uh, one that, that opposed Paul and his teachings, were just what he referred to as false teachers. Uh, they claimed ownership of a special instruction given only to a privileged few. They guarded these secrets zealously. You know, Paul was an advocate of the gospel. He believed the gospel was freely given to all men and not just the fortunate, uh, those that uh, were fortunate enough to be let in on the secret. And I'm glad that Paul believed that because that's what I believe about the Bible as well, that the Bible and the gospel is available for all men, for all mankind, not just for some You know, I faced much conflicts as a preacher of the gospel, but I can't imagine facing what Paul faced on a daily basis. Again, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, uh, shipwrecked. So many things happened. But again, just in his ministries at these different churches that he helped establish, he had different arguments and fights and criticisms and and disunity and disruptions going on. But he chose not to... uh, you know, get on the, the the people here in Ephesus because again, it was a hard thing for them to figure out what was truth. So he was just trying to encourage them. And really, this study on Wednesday nights is me just trying to encourage our church in understanding what the truth is of Jesus Christ and understanding who our identity should be found in. The premise of this passage is not just for information; it's for life-changing detail. Paul is providing the Ephesians their reason for being. He is giving them perspective. Perspective leads to hope. Hope leads to joy of real faith. And this is why Paul's testimony has survived through the ages. And I've said this in previous weeks, but I think I have this in your notes, and this is important. Who you think you are defines how you behave. How you define yourself determines how you live. Our churches are full of countless Christians who, again, have no idea who they are. But the Bible clearly tells us who we are, that in Christ Jesus... He's the one that tells us who we are. He's the one that defines us. You know, the focus of our lives so often is what can I do for me? How can I grow myself? How can I grow my business? How can I be the best me that I can be? But really, that mantra is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches as a Christian. It's not about being the best you, it's about being who God wants you to be. God is the one that should define you. Does that make sense? Not we defining ourselves. Not letting the world define us. I preached this a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. I feel it was a very powerful message in understanding our identity. There's an identity that that in our world today is that traditional identity, and that traditional identity we're let we're letting others define us. There's that modern identity. where in that modern identity. We are trying to define ourselves. And I was watching something on TV this week, and and again, it's it's that modern idea, identity where, where people are trying to identify themselves. And, and it was a transgender thing, and I, and I hate watching those things, but uh, it just happened to be on the on the show that I was watching, and and it was uh, th- th- these people were talking, and you know, it's well, you you can't say she, you got to say they. They, pretty sure she's a she. Says she. <laughs> But the thing is, and, and it, was a, it was a struggle back and forth throughout the, throughout the episode. I just got sick of it, and I just, like, turned it off and, and left. But the thing is, that, that's, that's what's creeping into our churches because it's in the world around us. And as Christians, we're very accepting sometimes of that culture. We're accepting of things that really are not biblical. You know, when God made man, he made them to be a man, Right? <laughs> When God made a woman, He made them to be a woman. Well I, I don't think I was the person that I'm supposed to be. No, you're exactly the person that you're supposed to be. Your problem is you're not following after Christ, you're following after yourself. You're following after the world. And whenever you follow after the world, whenever you fall after yourself, you're not gonna know who you are. <laughs> and it's 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 sad, it's it's sickening even, uh, when when our churches are full of people that are identifying themselves as people that they're not supposed to be. But as I finished in that message a few weeks ago, there is a gospel identity. In the gospel identity, who defines us? Anybody remember? Jesus Christ. I think it's raining a little bit. In the gospel identity, Jesus defines us. He defines us based on what he says, not what the world says. You see, we are placed on this earth for a purpose that's far greater than anything you and I can possibly imagine. All of us are made for more. And when we come to Ephesians, we come to God's definition of ourselves. It should take all of our insecurities and make them powerless over us. All of our past failures are powerless because of who we are in Christ. And really, I'm not trying to demean anyone, but it doesn't really matter what you've done in your life. If Jesus Christ has truly come in your life, he has the power to help you overcome any problem. Would you agree? I think many of us would agree. And I know there's many people in this room, and I know some of your testimonies that have had a hard life. You struggled with sin. But aren't you glad that Jesus Christ can erase all of that and set you free? I'm glad. I'm thankful. But that's the thing. In Christ, Jesus obliterates Feelings of low self esteem. And sometimes I struggle with low self esteem, but really I have to question myself why am I struggling with low self esteem? It's because I'm not being who God wants me to be. I'm trying to be who I think I should be or who the world is telling me that I should be. And everything that we're studying in Ephesians chapter 1 should obliterate that feeling of low self esteem because it's not defining ourselves to the culture, defining ourselves to those around us. It's defining ourselves based on Jesus Christ and His Word. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. Remember that God made you. He saved you. And because of that, you're worth everything to him. It doesn't matter what the world says. And if you haven't taken the time over these past few months to try to focus on who you are in Christ, then you've missed everything that I've preached and taught. And I hope you have thought about what's been taught, what's been preached, not just on Wednesdays, but also on Sunday mornings, because who we are in Christ is everything. And I feel I feel, and I fear that so many individuals come to church on a consistent basis. They hear the message. Man, that was, that was a great message, and I needed that. And then they walk out and just completely forget about it. It's hard. I was talking to my dad the other day about this. It's hard in just really about four hours a week to try to get the world out of you, isn't it? But really, it's not my job to just get the world out of you. You should be living for Christ on your own, right? I should be here just to encourage you, to equip you, to help you overcome the problems that you have in the world. But a lot of times we're letting the world just saturate us. Then we're coming into the church and like, all right, well, try to fix me. (laughs) We're fighting a losing battle, are we not? But the world that you live in does not define you. Your job, your career, your family, your status, your looks do not define you. Christ is what defines you. In Christ, you find everything you'll ever need and all that you've been looking for and longing after. Apart from Christ, there's failure. There's oppression. There's bondage. There's guilt. There's fear. There's a longing. There's a false hope. There's a never being able to be satisfied. There's never finding fulfillment. You ever struggle with those things? Yeah, all of us have. Never being free, a fake identity. But in Christ, what have we learned over the past few weeks? Do we have a slide for this, Michael? In Christ, first and foremost, we are blessed. In Christ, not only am I blessed, but I am chosen. In Christ, I am blessed, I am chosen. But thirdly, I am adopted. In Christ, blessed, chosen, adopted, but I am fourthly, accepted. Some of you guys remember, that's good. The fifth thing, in Christ, I am redeemed. I am purchased, I am bought back. And in Christ, I am forgiven. I mean, that is powerful. That is powerful. In Christ, all of those things are true, are, are, are freeing in our lives. But let's take this a step further. We kind of hit on this last week, and let's continue this thought. You see, in Christ, we're blessed, we're chosen, we're adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven. But look at verse number 8. When he hath abounded toward us. That word abound means to superabound. It means to, to be in massive excess. It means to exceed above and beyond. Again, the illustration of you know, standing uh, over your, your, um, your gutters that are kind of pouring out water, it seems like a lot of water. But eventually that water is going to dry up. Now then compare it to standing over Niagara Falls, and the water is just abounding and abounding and abounding and abounding, it's not going to run dry. That's what we have in Christ. You know, we're, we're placing our, our significance, our value, in something that we think is, is, is meaningful. Just like that water coming from that, uh, that, that, that spigot that's overflowing. Man, this is a lot. This is great. But what happens when it dries up? You think of the, the Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls or some of those great falls. The water just keeps flooding down. I mean, imagine, I mean, I'm really thirsty and I need a drink. You just stick your head into those falls. <laughs> You're probably going to die, right? <laughs> the water is just going to crush you. The point I'm trying to make, and I know it's a silly illustration in a sense, but the point I'm trying to make is that in Christ, the blessings are limitless. His grace is limitless. Who he is is limitless, and he wants to give us all these things. So he has abounded us, his grace. Because of that, he's chosen us, he's elected us. And again, not in a Calvinistic view, and we talked about that. And if you've forgotten some of those principles, go back on Wednesday night and, and look at some of those messages that we preached. But here's the truth in verse number eight. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all, what? Wisdom and prudence. I have wisdom and understanding. Prudence means understanding. I have wisdom and understanding. The word wisdom means seeing and knowing the truth. It's seeing and knowing what to do. It grasps the great truth of life, great truths of life. This wisdom is only found in Christ Jesus And again, the word prudence means seeing how to use and do the truth. It's understanding. It's understanding and insight. It's the ability to solve day-to-day problems. Aren't you thankful for that? It's the practical understanding of all things. And then verse number 9, we continue on, which we hit on this a little bit last week, and then we'll get to the new stuff tonight. Verses 9 and 10 is really about unlocking the mystery of God's plans. We kind of talked a little bit last week about if you ever have known a secret, I had a secret set about you, and you, you want to get to the bottom of it. On verse number nine, where it says here, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, it is again, it's not a mysterious, like a spooky thing that God is talking about that Paul is talking about here. The mystery is some unknown truth that God hasn't revealed and is yet now revealing to us, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven in which are on earth, even in him. Again, William Barclay says, a mystery in the Bible is not something mysterious and difficult to understand. It's a truth that has been locked up in God's plan for ages until he was ready to reveal it to man. Paul says this mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure and that is primarily involves Jesus Christ. And that the accomplishments of this mystery of God's will would not be complete until the end of time. This phrase, verse number 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, this is key. A dispensation is this. It's a season of time. It's a season of time. In a sense, it's an era, if you will. A dispensation is a season of time. Dispensations are ordered stages of God's work in the world. You know, I think about this, and I wrote this down. You know, in our, in our house, we have... A certain way we like to do things. In your house, you have a certain way you like to do things, right? Certain things go in certain places, correct? Now, if someone messes up that 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 plan, you get agitated. And, and I, I know I mess up my wife's plan all the time because I put things up, and she's like, "Why'd you put it there?" I was like, "Well, it looked like it went there, and there was an empty hole, so I just put it there." <laughs> but that's not how it usually goes, and I get. Me- yeah, <laughs> some of the men are agreeing with me. I appreciate that. But then I get in trouble when I just leave it on the counter because I don't know where it goes. Well, figure it out. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Anyway, that's not the message tonight. just wanted to throw that in there so you'd feel sorry for me, which I know you don't. So anyway, let's continue on. That is good preaching. Let's just park on that for a few minutes. (laughs) But again, here's the point I'm trying to make. You know, my house, we have a certain way of doing things. In your house, you have a certain way of doing things. In different period of times, God has acted similarly in a sense. Here, here's what I mean. He has ordered things differently to accomplish his purposes best in that era. Things that happened in the early 1900s aren't necessarily things that are happening today. This, in a nutshell, is what dispensation means. Uh, when, when that phrase, the fullness of time, it's basically talking about the harvest. In a sense, you're, you're planting a seed. You don't harvest that day, do you? No, you have to wait. You have to wait until you water, until, you know, it grows up. You don't just plant the seed. All right, time to go harvest. If you go harvest that day, you're not going to really harvest anything. You're going to harvest the seeds or the dirt back up. So you have to wait. So that's what it's talking about. In the dispensation of the fullness of time in that harvest, here's the truth. Long before time ever began, God architected a master plan that included everything in time and space, including your life and mine. And that's unfathomable if you think about it. But there's a moment in the fullness of time. This is when God is going to do something incredible. In verse number 10, it says that in the dispensation, the era, in the fullness of time, he might gather together. That's important. Gather together in uh, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. When you look around the world, there's a great division within the world, is there not? You know, Paul lists several things throughout the next several chapters, and I want to hit on them very, very quickly tonight because we'll get, on, we'll get to them in the weeks to come. But he, he talks about a lot of divisions throughout his letter. First of all, man is divided against God. Ever since sin entered the world, man has been divided against God. He talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you who hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sin. Man is also divided against man. You ever been divided against someone else? Yes, all of us have. Christians are out of harmony with other Christians. We've talked about this. Ephesians four, verse one. We hit on this in our Connect class a couple weeks ago. Um, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness and with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Sometimes Christians are at odds against each other. They're out of harmony with one another. Sometimes Christians are out of harmony with God. Talks about this in chapter five. Sometimes family members are divided against family members. That ever happened in your family? Yes? Sometimes slaves or employees are divided against their masters. Talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. The point I'm trying to make is, is ever since the world began, ever since sin entered into the world, I should say, the world has been falling apart. You know, when I go back and read Genesis. I get blown away by the scope of it. God created the world. Sin came into the world. Mankind did whatever they wanted to do. And it got so bad and so evil and so wicked and vile that the Bible says it repented God. I don't have a long time to talk about that tonight. But it's one of those things where it it made God sad because man turned from him. That was not his original design. Man turned from him and did whatever they wanted to do. And he decided to wipe out the entire earth save one man and his family, Noah. And the thing that astounds me when I, when I look back at and study this is that you know, we think our world is pretty wicked, and it is. But imagine how wicked it was back then for God to just wipe the slate clean. I mean, it probably pales in comparison what it is today to what it was back then. And again, we think, man, it's just so horrible. You can't even raise a kid today. Obviously, they couldn't raise kids back in that day. They couldn't raise families because mankind really did literally whatever they wanted to do. And again, we are on that path. But he wiped it all out. So what we see in verses 9 and 10, we're unlocking the mysteries of God and some things that that have happened in the past. And what, what verses 9 and 10 is talking about is that God wants to kind of restore creation. He wants to begin anew. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. He wants to kind of start over. And here's what we see, verses 9 and 10. Talked about what I am, but I want to say what I have. First of all, I have completion. In Christ, I have completion. You see, sin has torn everything apart. God had a master plan, and one day, in the fullness of time, God will gather everything together in the culmination of the ages. He'll begin to unlock and reveal the mystery that has been planned, and that one day, in Christ, all the world will be united. And the amazing thing about all this is this Jesus Christ is the answer to division, to disunity, and disharmony. In Christ, we can be complete. Apart from Christ, we have no completion. But in Christ, he wants to break all of the divisions, all of the disunity, all of the disharmony, and bring us together. You see, Jesus Christ is God's chosen head over the church, and he's the head over the new creation as well. He's the answer to it all. He's the one that breaks down the barriers. He's the one that reconciles and restores and makes new. And that's what Paul is talking about here. One day in the fullness of time, God will make all things new. So in Christ, we are complete and we have completion. Here's the promise we can take from this verse. However bad things seem right now, just wait. Because eventually, Jesus Christ will rule supremely over all of it. And we should take confidence in that. In this passage, Paul is not teaching that everyone will become a Christian. Or that Satan and his demons will be united to Christ. That's unbiblical. This verse is saying that Christ will rule over all, will have dominion over all. If we want to see how it works out, just turn to Revelation and read that book. We know the end of the story. So in Christ, I have completion. And in verse eleven and twelve, in Christ, I have an inheritance, and I love this. Verse eleven, in whom also we have obtained. An inheritance nobody ever obtained an inheritance what is an inheritance to you what, what do you think of when you've obtained an inheritance anyone want to answer that money okay what else you're right Marcus what land, land or home yeah usually what happens to obtain an inheritance someone dies exactly I kind of joked about that a couple weeks ago I just need someone to die that I don't know to give me an inheritance so it's not someone I know that I can no, never mind. Not gonna go back on that, but yeah. Usually, what happens when you obtain an inheritance? Someone has died; they've passed on. So then you are the beneficiary, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Whatever, whatever that word is. Uh, you are the recipient. That's a better word because I can say that one. Uh, you are the recipient of that inheritance. Here is the truth: We've been made an inheritance in Christ. It's in your notes. In Christ, we have a wonderful inheritance. And in Christ, we are an inheritance. So the blanks are made, have, and are. We've been made an inheritance in Christ. In Christ, we have a wonderful inheritance. And in Christ, we are an inheritance. We are valuable to him. In whom also we have attained an inheritance, being predestinated. There's that word again, found in verse number 4 also. According to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Paul is just reiterating the fact that our predestination was not to eternal life, but to the adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies, the giving of an inheritance to his children, the inheritance, the riches, the blessings, is what Paul is describing in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And it was according to the plan of God, which according to verse number nine was previously a mystery. And this plan will be perfectly worked out according to God's purposes and God's will, which means God is in control of everything. And when we see this word predestined or predestinated again, it's talking about being predestined to something. Here's what we're predestined to, not heaven or hell. If we've chosen Christ, we are predestined to victory. We are predestined to win. Predestination is a statement of security and promise. Not one that limits free will or restricts salvation to a select few. I don't believe that salvation is only to a select few. I believe salvation is for any and for all who will receive it. But you have to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to receive this inheritance. It's a statement of security and fulfillment. It removes every excuse for quitting in the Christian life. You ever felt like quitting? I think a lot of us have. But understanding who we are in Christ should obliterate, as I've said before, all of those feelings. Why do we quit? Why do we feel like quitting? Because we feel like, man, God, God hasn't answered me, He hasn't been there for me, or I don't know who I am. I'm, I'm trying to search around and trying to discover this, this who that I'm supposed to be. I'm telling you that who you're supposed to be. God has has given you everything, and He wants to just continue to bless you and, and help you realize that you're chosen, you're accepted, you're adopted. He has given you an inheritance if you take it and accept it. You know, there's been times where people have felt like quitting and thought about this today. You know, people think, think things like, man, I, I got offended by someone in the church one time. So I'm just going to quit church and I'm not going to go anymore. Okay, but I'm here to tell you, God has given you the spirit of reconciliation. And in Christ, you have everything you need to make things right. But what happens? We get prideful. I'm not going to make it right until they make it right. Is that right? No. We should do what we are supposed to do. So in Christ, we have everything at our disposal to live a thriving, flourishing, productive Christian life. Yet how many of us truly, and don't raise your hand, don't answer it loud, but how many of us are truly living a thriving, flourishing, productive Christian life? Probably many of us probably are not because we don't really realize what we have in Christ. In Christ, we have everything we need. Everything we need to handle anything, any problem, any addiction, any, uh, any, anything that ever comes our way, in Christ we have it all. We have the ability to forgive because Christ has already forgiven us. Aren't you thankful for that? We can dismantle and obliterate every way in which Satan will try to get in and try to get us to quit in the Christian life. Because in Christ we have everything that we need. I was reading in, in one of my books of study this afternoon, Something about an inheritance, and I just wanted to read it tonight. It kind of really stood out to me. There was a man who was blessed with wisdom and virtue and wealth. He had only one son. He offered him the best education, sending him to Jerusalem to learn. He made certain the youngest or the young man's every need was met. Shortly after his son left, the father became sick and died. His death caused immense grief throughout the community, for he was a benefactor for both rich and poor. When the period of mourning was over, the dead man's uh, um, executor, I was about to say executor, (laughs) executor, (laughs) that's wrong. (laughs) Whatever that word again is. Uh, Executor opened the man's will and read it aloud. To the astonishment of everyone, the man left all of his property and wealth to his slave. There was a final clause, however, that his beloved son, Should have the privilege of choosing only one thing out of the entire estate. Immersed in grief over the loss of his father, the young man asked his teacher to assist him in selecting one thing from his father's estate. In the meantime, the slave began to live a life of a wealthy man. When the teacher read the will, he at once discovered the intention of the father. He said, We must leave at once for your home, the teacher told his young pupil where you will take possession of all your property but but I'm a pauper the boy cried all I have are the clothes on my back and one item from my father's house i suggest the teacher said that you choose your late father's slave out of the estate and with him will go over all that he possesses since a slave can own nothing as he belongs to his master that indeed was the father's clever device he knew that if he, will, uh, if he were to uh, leave the estate to himself, then the slave in his absence would take everything for himself, all of the valuables that he could lay his hands on. Whereas if he thought all belonged to him, he would take care of everything that was left. The teacher said, your father knew that the one thing he gave you, the power to choose would be no other than his slave. And with him, you will become the just and rightful owner of everything. You think about this. It's kind of an interesting take. But this young man's father was very clever. But our heavenly father is even wiser because he's given us an inheritance. And the inheritance is ours with Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. Everything that Christ has is ours. Did you get that? Everything that is given to Christ Is ours. It's not like, well, Christ has this inheritance being God's son, and I don't really have anything. No. If we're in Christ, we get the same inheritance that Christ has. Isn't that powerful? You might not think it's powerful, and some of you might be asleep tonight, but I think that's powerful. In Christ, we have the same inheritance as our Heavenly Father. The same exact inheritance, because the church is Christ's body, building, and bride. Christ's future inheritance is all wrapped up in his church. His inheritance is our inheritance. We are joint heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, then we may also be glorified together. Here's the truth. Jesus cannot claim his inheritance apart from us. Did you get that? Jesus cannot claim his inheritance apart from us. And that's what Paul is stating here in verses 11 and 12. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of his will, of him who worketh all things after the counsel of, of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Verse 12, all of this is done for God's honor and for his glory, not for our own. It's for his praise and not our praise. The truth of these verses then is that as Christians, we have incredible riches in Christ Jesus. In a sense, we are spiritual multi-billionaires. You know, the world around us is trying to help us figure out who we are and help us find our identity based on ourselves or how others define us. There's an endless struggle trying to figure out who we are, but I'm here to tell you tonight, and I'm I'm hoping and praying you're grasping these truths, In Christ, we already know who we are. And I dare say, though, there's Christians that are sitting here tonight or watching online or that have sat through some of these lessons that are still trying to figure it out. I don't know who I am. God's word tells you who you are. Take the truth to heart and live the way that God wants you to live. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to, uh, to 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 have a joyful life and and be productive. And again, it's it's not for you. It's for His pleasure. But as you're living for God, as you're obeying Him, as you're praising Him and honoring Him and glorifying You, God will give you what you need. And really, what we need is Him. That's it. Everything we have in Him is all that we ever need. But we get our eyes so focused on the trivial, on the material on things that are temporary, on things that are of this earth, instead of things that are eternal. Why? I do the same thing. I'm so thankful to be blessed to be an American, to be born in this great country, to have all the riches that we have at our disposal. But in Christ, it's far greater than what we have as American, far greater than what we have as a Texan. In Christ, we have everything at our disposal. Can't we grasp this, church? Can't we grasp the truth of this and, and live like we are truly in Him? You see, if if we're truly in Him, there's no disunity. Right? There's no disharmony. There's no dysfunction. I was talking to my dad a little bit about this the other day uh, as I was driving, and, and he was kind of preaching a message kind of similar to the identity that I've been kind of talking about. And, and, and I was talking about I, I listened to a message the other day I think online, and And the the preacher was making a point. He said, you know what? If we're truly in unity with one another and kind of like I was preaching, you know, unified in the gospel, then really there would be no need to vote on anything. You know what he was saying? If we're truly unified in the gospel and being led by the Holy Spirit and letting Jesus Christ lead and rule our lives like he is designed to do. Then really when it comes to a church and a situation, there's no need to vote because we're all being led by the Holy Spirit. So we're just trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us and lead us. Now, I understand we we do vote for things, but the premise, the point he was trying to make is that we'd all have the same mind, right? And the mind would be who? The mind of Christ. Not the mind of ourselves, but churches sometimes and Christians can't agree with one another, can we? Because we don't have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Chris Thorne or whoever you are. You have your own mind instead of having the mind of Christ. So therefore, it's like we have to vote on everything. Kind of like I talked about a few weeks ago, we can't even have a civil conversation with someone else because our opinion is the only opinion that matters. My wife had to get on me for that the other day. I really wish she'd stop using my messages against me. I know. Probably, never mind. But here's the truth. Again, in Christ we have everything. In Christ we can be unified. In Christ we can have harmony. We can function as individuals because in Christ we are blessed. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are accepted. We are redeemed, forgiven. We have wisdom, understanding. We have completion. We have an inheritance. Again, we've talked about an inheritance, and a lot of times it's when someone died. Who died to give us this inheritance? Christ. He's already given his life. So because he gave his life and because he raised himself up from the grave, everything that he has, we have. Isn't that powerful? That's what Paul is trying to get across here in these verses. We're going to wrap all this up. Next week in this long sentence of verse 3 through 14, and as we look at that final thought in verses 13 and 14 about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, but here I just want to end with this. Being in Christ obliterates everything else. There's nothing else you and I need because in him you already have what you need. Your identity is found in the gospel. Your identity is found in how Jesus defines you, and that alone is sufficient or should be sufficient. But for many Christians, it's not. Well, there's got to be something else. No, no, no. All you need is Christ. It's like that old song, when all you have is Jesus, anybody know how it goes? Jesus is all you need. That's what Paul's trying to teach here. When all you have is Jesus, Jesus is all you need. We're going to spend a few minutes and pray here in just a few minutes. Michael, I want you uh, to find that words, to the song, uh, In Christ Alone. And I'll be pulling it up here in just a minute. But let's go ahead and get with someone tonight. We mentioned some of these prayer requests earlier. And we're going to close our services, that song singing, In Christ Alone. And I want you to, to, to pray about even these truths that we talk about on a weekly basis. And understand that, ask, ask God to help us. God, help, help me to realize who I am in you. Help me, help me to realize what I have in you and be content with that not always trying to, to look for something else and, and trying to think I need something else because in you, that's all I need. And, and, and I get frustrated talking to individuals and counseling with people and, well, this is what I need. This is what's going to make me happy. This, this career is, is really going to be beneficial to me. I never see Christ in the equation at all. And we wonder why our families are messed up. It's easy for us to blame everyone else, isn't it? The problem is looking in the mirror. It's ourselves. So as we pray tonight, as we end our services, pray for these requests, obviously, but pray that you'll find who you are in Christ and realize that he's all you have and he's all you need. Let's go ahead and spend a few minutes in prayer, and then I'll go ahead and close this, and then we'll we'll sing that song and close our services off tonight.